Good afternoon, everybody. How's everyone doing? Praise God. Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 7, please. We're returning to Romans chapters um, 6 and 7 on the Apostle Paul's uh, teaching on the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing process by which God and the power of his Holy Spirit um, effectuates the workings of Christ's um, sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection power into the practical lives of Christians. That's sanctification. So um, in Romans chapter 6, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, began addressing that. Now, um, first part of the sermon was establishing for you the doctrine of sanctification. We did that about, what, three weeks ago now? Two, three weeks ago? Uh, chapter, the second part of the sermon was chapter 6. In chapter 6, um, we talked about what sanctification is. Sanctification is the root word um, of holiness. Holiness is the root word for sanctification. The basis of our holiness as Christians, is, uh, both in our position and in our practice, is the holy character of God. The holy character of God. Because God is holy, you shall be holy. Um, so we are called to be holy to reflect, to image the, uh, that perfect character of God. In chapter 6, the Apostle Paul began to address um, antinomianism and how antinomianism affects our sanctification in a negative way. Antinomianism is, uh, literally it means against the law. Living a lawless life or an um, indulgent lifestyle. So the idea is, since I'm saved, because I have placed my faith in Jesus, and because Jesus died on the cross, because Jesus secured my eternal life, everything that is necessary for uh, heaven, for forgiveness, is done by Christ. Therefore, now I can go on and live my life any way I so choose. Uh, and what the cross of, of Christ what the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit does in our lives is that he works out holiness. Because Jesus Christ has died for us, Jesus, because Jesus Christ has risen to secure our eternal life in Christ, and because we have placed our faith in Jesus and repented of our sin in Christ, then our lives begin this process of becoming more and more and more like him by walking in the Spirit, and by walking in faithful obedience to Christ. Antinomianism is a, is a sinful, ungodly lifestyle that says, because I'm already saved, I can think how I want to think. I can behave how I want to behave. And it doesn't matter, because after all, what does it matter what I do with this physical body of mine? Because after all, my soul is going to heaven. This body is going to die and perish and become dust in the earth. No. For the Christian, 
we honor God in this body. And the idea of body in the New Testament is not just the physical body, of course, it's the whole being, body, soul, and spirit. So, chapter 6, Paul argues against antinomianism. Can we continue to live a life of sin? By no means. No, we cannot. And the, uh, the wording there is the possibility doesn't exist, is what Paul is arguing. Okay? In chapter 7, he goes on to talk about sanctification. Um, but sanctification, uh, in this aspect, we're going to talk about how it applies to us personally in our personal life. In chapter 7, he's, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to argue against another type of, um, of heretical belief regarding sanctification. And that is the belief in uh, perfectionism. Perfectionism. There are many denominations within Christendom that believe and practice per- perfectionism. Not practice, but they believe in perfectionism. Uh, among them, uh, the most common denominations are the Methodists, Wesleyans, and many Charismatics and Pentecostals and um, Nazarenes. So for the most part, those denominations, there are other uh, denominations as well. But perfectionism basically said, uh, does the same thing. It looks at the perfect work of Jesus Christ, looks at our position in Christ, and says, because I'm uh, justified by Christ alone and because his righteousness has been imputed to me, therefore I'm already perfect. What perfectionism does is it denies the practical working of the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out to become more like Christ. Perfectionism and antinomianism are two opposite extremes of heretical views on sanctification. So we're going to try to look at what sanctification is in chapter 7. We turn to chapter 7. And I'm going to read to you first from verses 1 through 6. In these verses, the Apostle Paul refers to uh, uh, marriage. And marriage becomes an illustration for sanctification. So he's continuing the argument that he's made in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, talking about our union into Christ. Because we are united into Christ, Um, We cannot continue to live a life of sin. And because we have been freed uh, from sin by the the dominating power of sin, the reign of sin in us, we are freed from that. Um, We continue to live a sanctified life. Okay, so chapter 7, verses um, 1 through 6, he says, Or do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law. So who is he speaking to? Jewish believers who know the law. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now listen to this. What is the Apostle Paul saying? 
He's establishing a principle from this illustration of marriage. This is only a marriage to establish the larger principle of our freedom as believers. So if a person is married and their spouse dies, the death uh, no longer makes the marriage valid. So a person who has had a spouse die is free to go ahead and marry anyone that they so choose. Now, of course, as Christians, we know that uh, any Christian is free to marry another Christian, right? The idea that a Christian marry a non-Christian is not even remotely possible in the scriptures. People do it, but it's not possible in the scriptures. Um, but, again, the principle is that because, because of the death, that woman is free to marry. The law of marriage no longer holds power over her. And here, um, he goes on in verse 3 to say, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So in other words, how do we gain this freedom from the law? We gain this freedom from the law by the death of Jesus Christ because Jesus died. And um, what he's doing is he's referring to terms that he's already used earlier on in, the, in this epistle, the idea of justification, because we are justified. Because Jesus, through his death, he has paid the price. And so God now accepts the sacrifice of Jesus and looks at us just as if I never sinned. And because of that then, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Who's the other? To Jesus. That we may belong to another. We're no longer bound to the law. We're bound to Jesus, who has set us free from the law. In order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for, our, for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, the letter of the law. Another way of saying the written code is the letter of the law. Now, um, the point here is such an important point. If you're a very observant reader of Scripture, a student of Scripture, you may notice something that should stand out to you. And it is that the Apostle Paul, in his illustration on marriage, rather than talking about the husband, saying if a husband has a wife and she dies, then he's free to marry another. Which in the Jewish society and in the culture of the day, that that would be the logical way to teach a lesson on the law of marriage. No, but what the Apostle Paul does is he comes in and he talks about a woman and says that if a woman has a husband and is married and her husband passes away, then she's freed from the law of marriage. Why is that so significant? Well, um, a woman who is a widow is often in that culture. A woman is often the dejected of society. 
See, what happens when a man dies is that his inheritance falls on the son. And um, usually about in the Jewish culture, about 60% of, uh, of the inheritance falls on the first son, and the rest of it is divided up among the, um, the rest of uh, the uh, children. But, so, for a woman, she has um, pretty much nothing to live on. She's dependent on her sons for her children to take care of her. The inheritance falls on the son, but not on the woman. She has no means of a living. And what Paul is doing is he seems to be uh, restoring dignity to women who are within the gospel community of believers. The purpose of this illustration is to point out that God restores dignity to women. And it's so important for us to understand how the gospel impacts our Christian community as a whole. One of the things that, that, we need to, that I need to mention that I, that I didn't mention before is that when you read chapter 6, you can go back and read chapter 6. I, didn't, I failed to mention it last week. But you'll see oftentimes the Apostle Paul uh, using the, per, uh, the personal pronoun you, the second person pronoun you. And that actually in the Greek is plural. So there, the address is often associated to the whole body, right? All believers are being addressed in chapter 6. It's not just a personal uh, pronoun of me or I, but it's you, not singular, but plural, all believers. Here, the personal pronoun in this chapter is going to become very um, personal in the sense of he uses a singular personal pronoun, I, okay? So we're going to get to that. Now, here's some observations. If we look at these observations, the law of marriage, because of the law of marriage, we, she is bound by law in life. Who? Both he and she okay, are bound by law in life. But they're freed from the law in death. Both the man and the woman are freed from the law in death. But they have died to the law through Christ. And when he uses the phrase, died to the law through Christ, he uses the we object. We, all together, corporate us. And then uh, verse 5, he talks about how sinful passions are aroused in us by the law, bearing fruit for death. And he uses again the we object. We become the object but in verse 6, he says, we are released from the law to serve in the spirit. Again, the we object. Okay? So bound to the law, the he and she. Okay? Die to the law, we. Uh, passions aroused in us by the law, bearing fruit for death, the we. But more than that, released from the law to serve in the spirit of life, the we. We are free. Why is that so significant? Personal pronouns in the New Testament are just so important because they help you to understand the whole point of what the apostle is getting at. He's speaking to the covenant community. Covenant community, that's you and me who have placed personal faith in Jesus, have repented of our sins. We are free. So here's the question then. Okay. Let's ask some searching questions right now. You don't have to answer to me, but 
Let's be honest. Are there sins in your life? Are there sins in our lives that we struggle with on a daily basis? What are the sins that have chained us down? What are the sins that keep us from progressing, moving forward, and moving upward in our walk with Christ? Are you taking inventory of these things? Because that's what this passage helps us to do. These personal pronouns are so important because it helps us to point to the fact that we have to look inwardly within our hearts, deep within our hearts, to acknowledge those things that are displeasing to the Lord. Now, in chapters, uh, chapter 7, verses 7 to 20, Paul's going to become even more personal, not just addressing believers in general or the church in general, but he's going to become even more specific to talk about his own life. So let's look at verse 7. In verse 7, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. He's going to talk about the law, and he's going to say the law is perfect, it is good, it is righteous, it is holy. Right? Now, we may have a misconception of the law. We may think that the law is a bad thing. Uh, the, 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 we know that in Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, we know how legalistic that they were, right? But Jesus never, never puts the law down. What he puts down are the legalistic rabbinical interpretations of the law. The Jewish Pharisaic religious interpretations, not the law itself, but their false interpretations and also their false applications of the law. The law is never treated in scripture as a bad thing. In fact, if you want to see how good the law of God is, Read Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. The whole chapter is about the law, the law of God. There's a tremendous celebration of God's law. So the Apostle Paul talks about the law, and it is always a good thing. So um, is the law sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been, uh, if it had, it had not been for the law, I would not have no known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that produced life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So how does the Apostle Paul characterize the law? It is holy, it is righteous, it is good. So what's the problem, Paul? If the law is so holy, it is so righteous, and it is so good... What's the problem? The law produces death. It produces sin in me. You see, the reason is because the more aware that we are of the law, 
the more aware of our sinfulness within us. The law is like a flashlight. When you shine a light into the dark, you see all the places where you should not step. You know, you walk out, I walk out of my apartment and, you know, dogs use the lawn area. And sometimes if it's dark and if I'm going to step in the grass, I may step on something that I may not want to step on. But if I have a light and I shine the light, right, and that light shows me where the dogs have made a mess, correct? But the light is not what creates the mess. It only shows the mess for what it is, doesn't it? That's the same thing. The law of God reveals the sin within me. And because it makes that sin known, the making it known is what kills me. It reveals to me the, the, my very nature that I am dark and I am sinful and I am corrupted in all my ways. Okay, so this passage is Paul's personal testimony of, the, uh, of being freed from the law. However, the purpose of this passage is that Paul, by implication, is including not only himself, but also all of us. We have to acknowledge the fact that sin is a personal force that works within all human beings. Here's some uh, lessons that we can learn from this. Okay, some lessons that we can learn. Three things that I want to talk about. Okay, and the third point is going to have uh, five point, subpoints underneath it, but first point is this. Victory over personal sin is not a matter of willpower. Victory over personal sin is not a matter of willpower. Okay. Let me go on here. Verse 14. Or um, let me start from verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law, that, um, with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Hear that? You may wake up in the morning, you may read the scriptures, and you may think to yourself, God, I don't want to commit this sin. And what do you find yourself doing again? I can't believe I did it again. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And again, he's, uh, this idea of, of, of the, the captivating power of sin has already been talked about in chapter 6. Um, we obey the one that we are captive to. And so the Apostle Paul in chapter 6 has said, don't give sin mastery over your life. 
Okay, because you are a slave of the one that you obey. So if sin tells you to do this, and you do it, sin tells you go here, and you go there, who are you obeying? Sin or Christ? And that's why in the argument that uh, in the first few verses there of chapter 6, Apostle Paul makes it very clear, you've been freed. You've been united into Christ. It's not even possible for you to obey in that way because sin is not your master. Christ is your master, okay? Now then, continuing on. So uh, the lessons, first lesson is this, that victory over personal sin is not a matter of willpower. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear. I try, I do my best, you know, and I know what I need to do, but I don't do it. I know what I want to do, but I can't do it. It's not a matter of willpower. Sin or, or victory over sin is not a matter of making right versus wrong choices. As much as we like to believe that we have the ability to make right and wrong choices, the problem is in our sinful nature, our desires will follow uh, whatever is making the strongest calling on us. And unfortunately, that's sin. Victory over personal sin, third point. Victory over personal sin is what it is. So we talked about two things that it is not. And the third thing is what it is. Victory over sin is, number one, Jesus justified us. Jesus justified us. Number two, victory over sin is Jesus reconciled us. The idea of reconciling is making peace. In chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says we were enemies of God, right? We were enemies of God. We have peace with God because Jesus Christ has reconciled two enemies. Um, and the third thing that victory over sin is, is that Jesus united us to God through his death and his resurrection. So Jesus justified us, Jesus reconciled us, Jesus united us to God through his death and resurrection. Number four, Jesus released us from the requirements of the law, the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus released us from that so that we are no longer uh, slaves to serve sin, but to serve God. Okay. And number five, Jesus sealed us to God by the Holy Spirit. Jesus sealed us to God by the Holy Spirit. So notice what sin is not. Right? Sin is not a matter of willpower. Sin is not a matter of making right versus wrong decisions. But victory over sin is Jesus' justification, his reconciliation, our union with Christ, um, and the fact that Jesus Christ uh, has met the righteous requirements, and then finally that Jesus Christ has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. What does this tell us? Victory over sin is all about Christ. All about Christ. It's not how I feel. It's not subjectively based. It is objectively based on the person and the works of Jesus Christ. Now, what about the law's power? The law's power over sin. The law's power over sin. Verses 14 to 22. Um, I've already read down to verse uh, 20, I believe. So I'll just continue to 22. So I find it to be 
a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Members, the body, right? The parts of our body. In this flesh, we are all um, subject to sin. And the truth is, we are going to be subject to the sin. We're going to struggle. We're going to struggle every day of our lives with sin until the day that we die. So, sin dwells in my members. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Let's stop there for a moment. The law of, um, the law's power over sin. Number one, law's power over sin. Knowledge of right and wrong is never enough. Knowledge of right and wrong is never enough. We, we often think, and oftentimes, we're kind of conditioned to think this way, I think, in many uh, evangelical churches. It's about what you know. But what we know is not going to produce the result. Okay? Knowledge of right and wrong is not enough. Number two, understanding of right and wrong is inadequate because our understanding is marred, marred by sin. Knowledge is not enough. Understanding is not enough. Number three, Action by itself cannot justify anyone. You see, the problem is we act in congruence with our nature. We act in congruence with our nature. You can't separate your actions from what you are. What we are is sinners. Okay. Um, fourth, fourthly, ability to do what is right is handicapped by sin. Ability to do what is right is handicapped by sin. Fifth, desire is there, but the ability is not. And that's the problem is if you had the ability and if you had the desire, then the ability to carry it out would also match your desire to carry it out. But the problem is our desire is hampered or, or, or hindered by our abilities and our abilities are handicapped by sin. And sixthly, delight. Delight is in what is right, but our nature drives our actions. Okay. Verse 14, the Apostle Paul addresses knowledge. Knowledge of right and wrong is not enough. Verse 15, the Apostle Paul addresses understanding. Understanding of right and wrong is inadequate because of our understanding is marred by sin. Verse 16, action by itself cannot justify anyone. Uh, verse 18a, ability to do what is right is handicapped by sin. Verse 18b, desire is there, but the ability is not there. And verse 22, delight in what is right, um, but our nature drives our actions. So as much as we may delight in what we want to do and as much as we might want to delight in the law, the problem is how do we address the sin? How do we address the sin? There's a great story that, that um, I heard and read. Story of, um, there's a hotel called, a, or there was, I don't know if it's still there. Jay, uh, since you're a Texan, maybe you know, I don't know. Um, but a hotel called the Flagship Hotel in Galveston, Texas. This, is, this hotel was built right next to the waters. 
and there was, um, on, on the first floor, there was a large plate glass window adorning the ground level uh, dining room. And occasionally, guests uh, used to go up to their, to their rooms on the upper, up, upper floors. Um, and because it was so close to, uh, to, to the gulf, to the water, the guests would go out to the balcony and take their fishing poles and attach these head lead, heavy lead weights and try to cast out into the water you know, to see how far they could get their lines to go out. Well, um, you know, most inevitably what would happen is that these lines would go, you know, when they would cast these poles, these lines would go and swing back and then end up shattering the extremely expensive $600 um, plate glass windows. And this became quite a problem for, for the hotel management. So they, they, they had a meeting about this, um, and they were trying to discuss, well, how do we solve this problem? And one brilliant uh, young manager had, uh, had the solution. You know what his solution was? He says, let's take away the sign that says, do not fish from your balconies. So they went to every room and took out the sign that says, do not fish from the balconies, or do not cast fishing, line, fishing poles from the balcony. They took away the sign, and guess what happened? People stopped fishing from the balcony. See, what happens is human nature says, oh, this, I can't do this? Well, let me push the boundaries and see how far I can get. That's the human nature. It's, again, the question is, we can all agree that sin is a problem in our lives. So what is the solution? What is the solution? How do we live a life of sanctification? Every one of us struggles with this. When I was a little boy, um, and living in Rhode Island, I remember my friends and I, we used to get on our bikes, you know, and, and we had these, you know, uh, back in those days, they didn't have like, uh, well, they did have BMX bikes, but they didn't have mountain bikes. This was long before mountain bikes came along. Yes, I'm that old. There weren't mountain bikes when I was young. Um, but so we used to take our, our bike, our like Huffies and Schwins, and, and we would modify them, you know, take off the banana, you know, the chopper bars and the banana seats and put little BMX seats and, and take off all the fenders and stuff. And we'd go trail riding through all the, uh, the forests. And um, as, as one day while we were trail riding, uh, we came upon this place where it was just this huge orchard of blueberry, um, blueberries, right? So we're like, whoa, check, check that out. So we all go over to the blueberry you know, orchard, and, and we just start picking blueberries and, and eating them by the masses, by the handfuls, just shoving them in our mouths. You know? And we're just sitting there. I don't know how long we were there, but we, we got our, our, you know, just, we just got fat on blueberries. And you know, we're just sitting there, oh man, this is so good. Oh, we're just enjoying our hands were all blue, our mouths were just blue, you know, and and uh, and pretty soon um sorry, we hear this uh, voice and hey you kids, what are you doing? And uh and we the owner of the of the, the, the blueberry farm, you know, sees us there and he comes running after us, you know, chasing us down, and we're running away from him. 
You know, the problem is, is, you know, the fact is, every single one of us has that nature. Like, you know, because I had this appetite, even from young childhood, we have this appetite to be little thieves, whether it's blueberries or anything else in life. And we have to address this. So verses 21 to 25 is the solution. Okay. We talked about the desire and the delight. He says, we delight in the law of God in the inner being. In, within our souls, we delight in God's law. The problem is that we don't have the ability to carry these things out. The desire is there, but not the ability. So what's the solution? What's the solution? John Newton was, um, lived from 1725 to 1807, and he's the uh, author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton said, I am not the man I ought to be. I am not the man I wish to be. And I am not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. So what is the solution? Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. Here's a frustrating angst that comes out. The more we recognize our sinfulness, the more we throw our hands up and say, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is a resounding, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In our justification, it has always been about grace. In our sanctification, it has always been about grace. In our glorification, it will be the grace of God that receives us into eternity. But here, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Why does he say, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus? Because we rest and we trust on what Jesus Christ has done. We rest and we trust on what Jesus Christ has done. Just as I said before, Jesus justified us, Jesus reconciled us, Jesus united us, Jesus released us, and Jesus sealed us. Thanks be to God. See, the solution is not all of our best efforts. It's not will, our best, best willpower. It's not the will to choose right and wrong. The solution is to look to the power of Jesus Christ that held him on the cross. The power of Jesus Christ that raised him from the dead. Trust in that. Trust in that. Now, then, you know, you're going to say, well, Pastor Bill, it almost sounds like you're preaching a message of perfectionism then. If it's just a matter of trusting in Jesus and it's already been accomplished, then what is my part in this? How do I contribute to the sanctification in my life? 
repentance. Repentance. There, uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, mentions three things that repentance is not. Repentance is not fear or dread of hell and judgment. You know, for so many people, we struggle with sin, we struggle with repentance, not because uh, repentance is such a good thing, but we struggle with it because we're so afraid of hell and judgment, and that's what motivates our repentance. But that's not what repentance is. Um, And Spurgeon says this, It is a very solemn reflection that every unconverted person in the world has that wrath of God abiding upon him and will have have it abiding on him until he escapes to the refuge provided in the atonement of Christ Jesus. But a sense of God's wrath against sin is not repentance. It generally goes with it. It frequently attends it, but repentance is a change of mind with regard to sin, with regard to everything And it is a consciousness that sin is sin. That you have committed it, that it is a sorrow, uh, that it is a sorrow to you that you have committed it, and a resolve in God's strength that you will escape from it, a holy desire and longing to be rid of sin, which has done you so much mischief. And I want to add to that, not just the understanding the terribleness of sin, what, what drives our repentance, what drives our motivation in repentance is our love for Christ, our great appreciation for Christ. The one that you love so much is the one who will draw you to him. Okay? Second thing that repentance is not is despondency or despair. Okay? Despondency or despair. There's a mistaken kind of belief among some people that they don't need to repent unless they have committed a great sin. I'm a good person. I live a good life. And, and, you know, I try not to be too uh, terrible in how I treat others and if I try to be kind and so on. And they think that if I'm just a good person, a nice person, I don't need to repent because I'm not doing anything really bad, right? Um, And that kind of an attitude comes out of a misunderstanding of the very nature of God. The other spectrum of the same sin is the mistaken belief when someone says, I'm too horrible a person. I have committed too many grievous sins and there is no hope for me. Such thoughts are terrible unbelief against God. If you feel such despair about your sins that you feel like you can't come to Christ, then know that Christ's agony on the the cross was for you. And if you feel like you lack any such feelings of despair about your sin, then confess that to God. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I don't feel the grief that I should be feeling. I don't feel the despair that I should be feeling. Sin should make us despair, but that's not true repentance. True repentance will lead us to Christ, deeper into his love. Third, satanic temptation is not repentance. And Spurgeon here talks about how the devil will do everything within his powers to prevent people from coming to Christ, to prevent people from repenting genuinely. He may work through people, 
He may work through circumstances in your life and he may, uh, or through doubt or unbelief to prevent us from truly accepting, receiving the eternal welcome that Christ calls us to. What is true repentance? Let me talk about repentance in this way. There are two people, two people that the Bible talks about. Uh, One person, he had wronged Christ. He had betrayed Christ, sold Christ out. And in so doing, he betrayed the one who could save his soul. And in the end, he felt so grieved by his sin. And he went back to the religious leaders, took the money that they gave him, and threw it in their faces and said, I can't take this. I betrayed innocent him. And they told him, what is that to us? So what did he do? Talking about Judas, right? What did he do? He went out. He felt grieved. He felt despair. And he was sorrowful beyond repentance. He went out and hanged himself on a tree. Was that repentance? Was he sorrowful for his sin? Yes, he was. Did he realize how wrong his actions were? Yes, he did. Was there hope for him? No, there wasn't. He understood grief. He understood guilt. He understood shame. But there was no hope for him. He died with all of that grief and despair. And if the suffering of living with that grief, that grief and shame was so terrible. What do you think it was like for him when he stepped into eternity? And then we have the Apostle Peter. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he says to Peter, Peter, you will deny me three times. Peter said, If everybody falls away on account of you, I will never fall. I will never deny you. And Jesus told him, you, before the rooster crows, uh, this night you will deny me three times. And, you know, it's amazing that on the third time when when Peter denied Jesus, according to to the Gospels, there was a meeting of the eyes between Jesus and Peter. And and, And Peter felt the same sorrow, he felt grief, he felt the agony of his betrayal of his Savior. But what happened to Peter? After Jesus' resurrection, Peter is back in his old life, right? He's back in his old life doing what he knew before, which was what? Fishing. So many of us, we think that, you know, if we have turned our backs on Christ, if we have done, uh, if we haven't been faithful to Christ, well, you know, I might as well just go back to being the way that I was before. That's the attitude that we take so often. But did Peter have any mind to go back to Jesus? No, he didn't. It was Jesus who came to Peter. And three times Jesus asked him the question, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, you know that I love you, Lord. 
Peter, do you love me more than these? You know that I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me more than these? Oh, you know that I love you, Lord. And he starts weeping. He starts weeping, sobbing, because Jesus asked him the third time. I don't know. You see, the thing is, when he denied Jesus, there were tears of sorrow, tears of grief. And, and maybe this is speculation more on my part than anything. But I think, but my, my, my theory behind this is this. On that day, when Jesus restores Peter, and Peter is, is sobbing, it's not tears of grief and sorrow as much as it is tears of gratitude and love. Understanding that Jesus was restoring him. And for all of his failures, for all of his betrayals, for all the times that he made false promises to Jesus and failed to, to, to follow through on those promises, Jesus would love him and receive him and welcome him. Two stories of two disciples. One would grieve and be lost to eternity. One would grieve and be restored to eternity. How do we look at our sins? How do we look at our lives? How do we look to Jesus Christ? A repentant heart is what leads us in a life of repentance, in a life of sanctification. Life of sanctification is a lifestyle of repentance. I talked about last time the idea of form and function. In the church, in the life of, a, of the early church, you know what is the visible sign of this aspect of repentance in the corporate church body? It's the Lord's Supper. Every time that we come together, for the first century believers, they took the Lord's Supper every meeting, every time. Because in it, they would remember Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And they would remember the hope that they have. And they would remember the unity and the forgiveness of sins that they have in Jesus Christ. Every time we break the bread, we remember that his body was broken. Every time we drink the cup, we remember that his blood was, was spilled out for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. And we remember that until the day that he comes, we keep on doing this, keep on doing this. Why? Because as we continue to sin, there is grace enough for every sin. Grace enough for every sin. So every time the believers would gather together, they would break that same bread, and they would break, uh, drink the, the wine because it would remind them about the power of the blood of Jesus to sanctify us, to live a life of repentance in Christ. Let's pray. I don't know the kind of struggles that you're going through, spiritual, personal, emotional, whatever they may be. But I do know that so many of our struggles 
stem from sin that is unresolved, unconfessed, unrepented. And we still hold on, we still cling to these sins so tightly. Rather than throwing them off, we cling to them. And the only victory that we can have is to throw off our sins and cling to Christ. I invite you to take a moment to pray and recognize and acknowledge those struggles to the Lord. And drink in the riches of Christ's grace. Sanctify us, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, today we come to you and recognize, Father, what a holy, righteous, perfect God you are. Father, we pray that as we um, meditate, reflect on the sin that is so displeasing, the sin that is so hurtful, and the sin that is that betrays the grace of Christ. Father, I pray that we would um, be led to godly sorrow. And in that godly sorrow that you would produce repentance in us. More than grief, God, I pray that it would be the love of God in Christ Jesus that would draw us to deeper fellowship. Recognizing that repentance is your gift that draws us closer, closer to the heart of Christ. And that through that gift, you are molding us into people who reflect the image of Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that we would take to heart this message of reconciliation, this message of hope, and the salvation that you work out in us. May uh, this week, as we begin this week, may we be filled with a sense of love and gratitude, a sense of awe of the wonders of your mercy and compassion toward us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand for this closing song. Amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
Let's sing that one more time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Please remain standing for the benediction. Our benediction comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to chapter 4, verse 1. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Go with God.